This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You are standing in water, about waist-deep. It is muddy and slow, lapping against the roots of gnarled trees which sprout all around you. Dragonflies flit past or alight on branches, hiding from the shadows of winged beasts which soar overhead. In the water, fish of great size, some larger than you, swim past lazily. They have nothing to fear, at least not from you. All around, trees grow thickly in a vast, swampy expanse. You are in a mangrove, an enormous wetland that stretches for hundreds of kilometres in either direction. If you didn't know better, you would think you were in the Nile Delta, the green expanse which now dominates the north of Egypt. But you're not in the Delta, you're not even in the Nile. Technically, you're in the Sahara Desert. Our story today takes place 95 million years ago, in the time we know as the Cretaceous period. We are here to meet the prehistoric inhabitants of the land that became Egypt. This far back, the world is a very different place. For starters, the Nile is nowhere to be seen. The Sahara is also missing. Instead, Egypt and North Africa are tropical, with great humidity and wet environments. Egypt is closer to the equator, and the lands which became Sahara are covered in water, swamps, trees, and animals. There is also a large ocean. 95 million years ago, a vast sea stretched across North Africa. We call it the Tethys, and it covered land from Spain to Malaysia, and everything in between. The water level was high, and most of Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa were submerged beneath the waves. In North Africa, the Tethys Sea cut a deep swathe inland. As you stand on the shores, you are painfully aware that you are far from your own time. Geographically speaking, you are in western Egypt, in a region now called Baharia Oasis. Baharia and other oases of the western deserts are the last remnants of the Tethys Sea, and once upon a time, this region was home to a vast swamp. Mangroves and marsh covered much of western Egypt as the Tethys Sea flowed inland. On its edges, the mangroves grew thick and bountiful. Millions of hectares in area, Baharia was full of water, greenery and animals. Among them were some truly amazing dinosaurs. You stand in thick mud amidst the trees. The roar of the ocean can be heard in the distance, where it crashes against the edges of the swamp. Here it is quiet, thanks to the trees, roots and growth. The water moves slowly. Baharia is a tranquil place, on the surface. We turn away from the ocean, heading further inland. Wading through the water, we swat away dragonflies and try to ignore the enormous shadows of fish which make their way along. Some of these fish, like Morsonia libica, or Stromer ichthus, can grow to more than 10 feet long. Frankly, 
you should be more scared of them than they are of you. A quick thrash, a sudden charge, could easily break your shins, and in this environment, we cannot afford to be disabled. The Morsonia and Stromer Ichthus take no notice of you. They move along, heavy tails and fins guiding them on a lazy journey through the waters. At their size, and with their power, these fish are immune to almost anything in the shallows. Only one animal can threaten them, and fortunately, that one is nowhere to be seen. Other animals move through the swamp, enjoying a quiet moment in the sun. Ancient turtles, crocodiles, and sea snakes are recognisable, along with more exotic, forgotten creatures. Out on the coast, you would see prehistoric sharks, and also plesiosaurs, the great long-necked reptiles which hunt fish in the salty sea. Again, we are safe from those creatures in here, but it's worth keeping an eye out, just in case. We wade past the shores of an ancient river, a deep and swift-moving waterway that flows from inland Africa out to the Tethys Sea. These rivers can be incredibly deep, 50 metres or more by some estimates. There's no telling what predators are lurking in such depths. We'll stay away from them for now. Pushing on, we make our way inland. The turtles swim past quietly or bask on mud flats and rocks. Their hard shells keep them safe from most predators, although the prehistoric crocodiles pose a threat to the young ones. Fortunately, the crocodiles are strangely absent today. Perhaps they're hunting or mating. We see neither hide nor scale of them. It's for the best. The weather is getting hot. You'd better rest. This far back in history, Egypt is much closer to the equator. The climate is tropical, a zone that alternates between heavy torrential monsoons and sweltering arid heat. Today, the sun scorches the land, and in the humidity of the swamp, we really need some shade. You clamber up into one of the mangrove trees and sit back against the trunk. You are on a thick branch hanging over the deep waterway of the river we skirted before. Here, the swift flowing water allows for some cooler air, and the breeze that floats along it is a blessed relief to the suffocation of the swamp. You sit back for a few moments and allow yourself a break. A bubbling sound snaps you out of your reverie. Below, on the river, a dark shape is moving through the water. You catch only a glimpse of it, but what you see is enough to get the adrenaline moving. A long snout, like that of a crocodile, is moving along the surface. It snuffles air, blowing bubbles out its mouth. That is what woke you. You know you're safe, but as the shape comes clearly into view, the sight of this creature is still enough to quiet the heart. The head moves along slowly, almost innocently. Behind it, though, a fearsome shape emerges from the water. Tall spines, covered in skin, cleave through the river like a knife. The spines are more than two metres long, nearly seven feet, forming a mighty sail. Brightly coloured and radiating menace, this sail cuts through the water effortlessly. Beneath it, a shadow of enormous bulk and long swimming limbs completes the impression. A vast beast is moving beneath you, an apex predator out on the prowl. All around, the fish and animals have made themselves absent. The sail travels past and soon disappears from view, obscured by the leaves of your hideout. But you catch a glimpse of the tail as it moves along. 
waving back and forth like a crocodile. The tail of this beast steadies the movement and helps it to steer a path. The tail is almost four times as long as your entire body, a seven meter whip swirling through the water. The beast is gone for now, and you shiver at the thought of meeting it again. That creature was huge, 18 meters from tooth to tail, that's 59 feet. It is a predator larger than Tyrannosaurus rex, or even Giganotosaurus, the largest hunters known until now. This creature, capable of hunting in water and on land, is a true menace to the local prey. Let's go in the opposite direction. We carry on inland, and as we move through the swamp, the waters begin to get shallower and the ground firmer. Pretty soon we are moving out of the mangroves proper and into a more coastal environment. Around us, huge trees grow tall on sandy banks and muddy outcroppings. Some of them are thick, gnarled trees like you might find in the modern mangrove. Further inland, though, we find more variety. Some flowering plants in bright colours, some leafy greens here and there, and over the top, tall straight trunks supporting the fronds of beautiful ancient ferns. Tree ferns dominated the tropical zones of Baharia. Where the land met the swamp, their straight trunks like palm trees grew tall. The soft fronds at the top, with their curling edges, sway gently in the breeze as you watch. Here and there, a stand of fern trees is bare, stripped clean by the wandering animals that feed on their greenery. We can't see any of these animals right now, but their footprints give them away. Huge, round stamps impress on the soft dirt. Clustered together like a herd of elephants, the footprints tell of some massive plant-eating animals. They sound cool. Let's go find them. Following the footprints, it isn't long before we find our quarry. We hear them before we see them, the rumbling calls of enormous lungs which resonate across the area. Moving towards the sound, we soon spot the beasts we seek. Amid the green tops of the ferns, tall necks rise gracefully. Huge bodies lumber between the trees, and short tails swish back and forth in the heat. The four-legged animals are sauropods, mighty plant-eaters that are among the biggest creatures to ever walk the earth. You've heard of Brachiosaurus, the iconic dinosaur portrayed in Jurassic Park. These are similar, distant cousins. Their name is Parali Titan, and they are the largest sauropods of the Baharia region. Parali Titan, or Tidal Giant, was discovered in the late 1990s. It has only been found in partial remains, but what survives gives us a hint of a truly enormous beast. Even conservative estimates put this creature at 26 metres long, or 85 feet, and weighing more than 60 metric tons. That's 65 American tons. Parali Titan was among the largest sauropods of all time, carving a path through nature with unbeatable size and bulk. The animal itself looked a lot like a Brachiosaurus, four legs, a long tail, and an extremely long neck which curved upwards diagonally. The animal was designed or evolved to eat from the tops of trees, and as you can imagine with its vast size, the Pirelli Titan consumed a lot of trees. Supporting all of that growth took a lot of energy, and Pirelli Titan probably had to consume about 40 kilograms of plant material per day, or 88 pounds. 
The diet of ferns and mangrove leaves was dense and chewy, but Paralitan had a strange way of eating. Sauropods like Paralitan had short, peg-like teeth. They used these pegs to strip the ferns of a tree in one pulling bite. Then they swallowed the mouthful whole, not even chewing. The skulls of these animals are not set up to chew, and it seems that they guzzled their food straight off the branch. Doing it this way, they could consume huge quantities in a relatively short time. The vast size of Paralitan was its greatest advantage. Fully grown, the animal was basically impervious to attack. So any carnivore lurking nearby had one goal. Find the young, find the babies, find the sick. Only the immature or enfeebled Paralitan was a potential victim. Once they reached adulthood and full strength, they were a commanding presence in their environment, and none could touch them. Now that you've found what you were looking for, you stay a moment to watch the Paralitans grazing. The giant beasts move in a group, adults around the outside, youngsters in the centre. Perhaps one or two keep watch as the herd passes through the swamps and comes to the shores of the great river. We're not exactly sure how they would have drank. Their necks are so long and angled in such a way that it was probably very difficult to reach down to the lower depths. Gravity alone would make it hard for the blood to circulate along their necks as they bent down to water. So we're not exactly sure how Paralitan drank. It's entirely possible that they got most of their water from the consumption of plants. The trees and leaves would have sucked up all the water they needed, and then the Paralitans just had to strip them off, consuming the water in their gut. So they may not have drank. It is possible, though, that they had an adaptation. Looking at modern giraffes, it's possible that a Paralitan had a heart large enough to pump blood all the way to its brain, even when bending down. But that's hypothesis. We'll just imagine the Paralitans grazing at the edge of the river, consuming the water-rich plants which lived there. Coming this close to the water, though, was dangerous. Any number of meat-eaters might be hidden in the dense foliage, hoping that an infant got separated from the pack. And of course, near the river, there was always the risk of that menacing shadow with the spiny fin lurking nearby. The herd slakes its thirst and moves away from the river again. They head back into the swamp to continue the day's feeding. The Pirelli Titans are just one of many sauropods that moved through the swamps of Bahuria and northern Africa during this time. A variety of four-legged, long-necked beasts lived in these environments. Among others, there was Aegyptosaurus, discovered in the early 20th century, but the fossils lost in bombing raids of World War II. Another sauropod, Mansurasaurus, was announced in early 2018, discovered by Egyptian paleontologists from Mansura University. These beasts were also huge, 15 to 20 metres long. Like the Pirelli Titan, they probably moved in herds through the tree line, stripping foliage to feed their growing bulk. These sauropods were like the mighty elephants of their day. Mansurasaurus, Aegyptosaurus, and Paralitan are part of the dinosaur group known as the Titanosaurs. This name just means giant reptiles. Like Egyptologists, paleontologists are unimaginative with their names. The Titanosaurs are a group of sauropods, and they include some of the largest land animals ever known. The greatest include the 35-metre-long Argentinosaurus, king of all beasts. 
The titanosaurs of ancient Egypt are on the mid-range part of the spectrum, but still, they were enormous, dominating their local environment. The Pirelli Titan herd is moving on, heading back inland. As far as modern science can tell, the dinosaurs of Baharia probably spent most of their time on the mainland and commuted into the swamps every now and again. The Pirelli Titans are moving away, out of the mangroves, heading back to the ferns. We'll leave them for now and carry on our way. As we walk along the edge of the swamp, we see the occasional shadow moving among the trees. This shadow has two legs, a long tail and a menacing visage. Long arms, sharp toothed snout, this shadowy creature seems like a dangerous companion. It hasn't noticed us, and thank heavens for that. This beast, called Delta Dromius, is larger than a full-grown human. About 3 meters tall and 8 meters long, or 9 feet by 26 feet, Delta Dromius was a large predator. Delta Dromius agilis, or fast delta runner, is a fearsome hunter, evolved for speed. It has unusually slim legs, like a sprinter. If it gave chase, those legs would charge at high speed, and it would be on you before you could scream. Once it caught up, the Delta Dromius's long arms and fearsome claws would do their work. The arms could pin you down while the jaws crushed your bones and severed your windpipe. Chasing down prey, the Delta Dromius could hunt at high speed. If it wanted to eat you, you wouldn't stand a chance. The Delta Dromius has been shadowing the pack of Pirelli Titan, hoping to observe an infant or sick one that they can prey on. Sadly, no such luck today, and the animal disappears deeper into the trees. Finding no joy, the long-limbed predator has vanished, and you never even heard it. Yikes. You walk on, skirting the edges of the mangroves. To one side, the tall fern trees dominate. To the other, placid waters fill the swamp. The sound of insects is quieter here, but you still see dragonflies and beetles crawling through the growth. Overhead, the shadow of pterosaurs flit by as they hunt for those delicious, crunchy snacks. As you walk, you are struck by the sheer abundance of life in this region. Thinking back, or is it forward, to the sandy wastes of the Sahara, the swampy expanse of prehistoric Baharia is like another planet. Foliage, water, and animals abound, an environment that has been called one of the most productive non-marine biomes of the day. The mangroves of Baharia are similar to the Florida Everglades today, vast waterways and greenery that thrive with organisms and nutrients. Rivers, oceans, trees, and swamps swirl with vast amounts of organic matter, both living and dead. Here, on the edges of the future desert, the land is still teeming with life. As you walk along the edges of the mangroves, you find yourself near the river again. You begin to follow it, and as you walk, you notice the fish which flit through the waters. The Morsonia and Stroma ichthys swim along, their lungfish-like bodies a huge but harmless part of the ecosystem. Other, more bizarre fish are nearby. One of them catches your gaze. This fish looks like a giant shark, about 8 meters long, but it has a long snout, or rostrum, which is edged with wicked barbs. The prehistoric swordfish glides effortlessly through the water, hunting for prey on the riverbed. 
Its name is Onchopristus, and once upon a time, you would find these animals all across the world. North Africa, Brazil, North America, and even New Zealand have turned up fossils of Onchopristus. It was an immensely successful beast. Today, the Onchopristus are swimming upriver to breed. Away from the ocean, the young will be safe, and the adults can scour the riverbed for easy food. It's a good environment to mate, but not without its dangers. As you walk on further upriver, a sound ripples through the air. A rumble, a hiss, as if from an enormous crocodile. It echoes across the water, and you can't tell where it's coming from. But you know that sound. It's time to find a tree. You clamber to the top of a mangrove and peek out to find the source of that menacing growl. There, across the river, you spot it. An enormous beast on four legs, hunting the shallows for prey. This is Baharia's apex predator, a monstrous creature of claw, spine, and fang. It is called Spinosaurus. Spinosaurus aegypticus, Latin for Egyptian spine lizard, is the largest carnivore to ever walk the earth. 18 meters long, or 60 feet, it is larger than Tyrannosaurus rex, and even larger than Giganotosaurus, the previous record holder. Spinosaurus is huge, weighing 9 tons, and it towers overhead. Keep to the trees, don't let it see you. The Spinosaurus is wading through the shallows, crouched low. The end of its snout is dipped into the water, and it stops occasionally, seeming to wait. Then, in a quick flash and snap of jaws, it raises its head, clutching a fish in its teeth. The fish, a Morsonia, struggles violently, but the Spinosaurus chomps down, fangs cleaving through it. Its long arms, with wicked claws, raise up to slash at the flesh, and the fight is soon over. The Morsonia slumps, defeated, and the Spinosaurus begins to feast. Spinosaurus was a fish-eater, one of a rare breed of dinosaurs to subsist almost entirely on aquatic animals. We know that Spinosaurus had this diet because of its jaws. Long and slender like a crocodile, the Spinosaurus did not bite as hard as something like a T-Rex. Its slender jaws were designed to snap onto soft flesh rather than crunch thick bones like other carnivores. Additionally, the teeth of Spinosaurus tell us that it wasn't much of a chaser. The teeth are smooth, without any serrations, which means that they were good for puncturing, but not for holding. A T-Rex, by comparison, had teeth that were more like steak knives. They would dig in and hold on tightly while the prey struggled. In Spinosaurus, the teeth and jaws are designed for a quick kill. To compensate for its weaker jaws and teeth, Spinosaurus had long forelimbs, arms, armed with sharp talons. These claws could slash easily through fish and small animals, helping to finish the job that the mouth could not do so easily. None of this means that Spinosaurus was weak, far from it. It was a powerful and deadly hunter, highly adapted to its environment and specialised for a certain type of food. As we'll see in a moment, this made it uniquely successful for its day. The Spinosaurus completes its kill and swallows the Morsonia fish almost whole. One snack down, it returns to the hunt, moving on through the shallows and dipping its snout into the water once again. 
Spinosaurus had a wonderful mechanism for catching prey. At the end of its snout, small dots, like pores, acted as movement sensors. These receptors could detect motion in the water. As fish and crustaceans moved past, the ripples and disturbances triggered those receptors. When the trigger got strong enough, the Spinosaurus lunged, jaws snapped quickly, and the fish was caught to its doom. The receptors on the snout were a wonderful adaptation to the environment. Mangroves and lowlands are swampy, the water is hard to see through, so the Spinosaurus could not rely on vision to spot its prey. Those receptors did what the eyes couldn't. They picked up fish moving through the murky water and told the beast exactly what it needed to know. With patience, the great predator could remain quite still and let its victims come to it. Incidentally, the receptors on a Spinosaurus snout are identical to those found on modern crocodiles. And crocodiles are very distant cousins of the dinosaurs. Along with birds, crocodiles and dinosaurs share a common ancestor. Animals like Spinosaurus make that relationship quite obvious. So it is that by studying modern crocodiles, paleontologists have been able to reconstruct how the Spinosaurus might have behaved. The snout of a Spinosaurus, long and slender, is quite similar to that of the crocodile. They also have similar tails in terms of length. The tail of Spinosaurus and of the crocodile is about the same length as the rest of the body combined. So they have similar proportions, and it's possible, although speculative, that Spinosaurus used its tail in the same way as the crocodile, to propel itself gracefully through the water. Imagine that great tail waving back and forth, pushing the monster quickly up a river. You probably couldn't outswim it, even if you tried. The Spinosaurus was well adapted for aquatic environments. Its slender jaws and long, aquiline body gave it minimal water resistance. It sacrificed overall bulk for something more like an Olympic swimmer, lean, mean, and fast. Like a nine-ton crocodile, the Spinosaurus was a perfect marine hunter. Crikey. Once upon a time, paleontologists thought that Spinosaurus walked like most carnivorous dinosaurs, on two legs. That changed around 2014, when new fossil remains and the first reconstruction of the complete animal encouraged a new perception. It seems that Spinosaurus was rather front-heavy and probably walked using its forelimbs for support. But with those large talons, the Spinosaurus had to walk on its knuckles like a modern ape. So we have a massive crocodilian predator with a large reptilian sail walking on its knuckles like a gorilla. If that's not a wonderfully bizarre image, I don't know what is. I suppose we should talk about that sail. Spinosaurus' most distinctive feature, and what sets it apart from other dinosaurs in the same species group, is the large spine or fin on the back. Made of tall bones up to 3 meters long, almost 10 feet, the spine of this animal is a truly fascinating piece of anatomy. What was it used for? There's no definitive explanation just yet, but paleontologists have a range of possibilities. By looking at modern animals with spines and how they behave, we might get a sense of what Spinosaurus used its sail for. Among other things, the most likely purposes are display for attracting mates or warding off enemies. The sail could probably fill with blood, displaying bright colours to frighten opponents or lure the opposite sex. 
A second theory is that the sale was used to store fatty tissue, making it a bit more like a hump. This would help the Spinosaurus in leaner months when food was scarce, or help it store the energy required for reproduction. This theory is less popular, but it's still possible. The last major hypothesis, and perhaps the least likely, is that the sale was used to regulate body temperature. In cooler weather, the spine could absorb light from the sun, warming the rest of the body. In hot weather, the dinosaur could stay in the shade, and its sail would radiate heat outward. That's plausible, but less likely, simply because a sail is a very inefficient way to regulate heat. Living in water and mangroves, the Spinosaurus had easy access to both warm sunlight and cooling water. In that environment, the sail might have been redundant. Finally, other dinosaurs and animals of the area, including those related to Spinosaurus, lack this distinctive sail. Putting two and two together, it's likely that the sail was a unique but somewhat unnecessary addition to its body. Still, it's pretty cool. The Spinosaurus continues its feast, snatching fish from the shallows and gulping them down. As it moves, it comes ever nearer to your hiding post in the mangroves. In your tree, you start to feel a tad isolated, and the creeping dread only heightens when you hear a loud, hooting sound behind you. The Delta Dromius is back, that two-legged carnivore we spotted earlier. It has abandoned the herd of sauropods and wandered into the mangroves, seeking prey among the smaller animals. Now it watches the Spinosaurus, and it stands right beneath you. Delta Dromius is no match for the larger carnivore. At just 8 metres long and 1 tonne in weight, it is less than half the body size of Spinosaurus and definitely outclassed. Any battle would be a short, one-sided affair. Although the Delta Dromius might put up a spirited fight, thanks to its stronger jaws and powerful legs. Still, the Spinosaurus would surely triumph, and it's fortunate that the Delta Dromius is not here to fight. Instead, it is hoping that Spinosaurus will leave scraps, discarded corpses that it can scavenge. Although we like to imagine these great predators battling one another, the truth is that Spinosaurus and Delta Dromius probably did not have to compete for resources all that much. Spinosaurus was uniquely adapted to its environment, and this was a great advantage both for itself and for the other carnivores which inhabited the area. The Spinosaurus aegypticus could move on land and in water. It ate fish and small animals, but rarely would it have hunted among the larger herbivores. For one thing, its jaws and teeth just aren't suited to the kind of battle or fight that a greater beast would encourage. For this reason, Spinosaurus was in its own niche among the local dinosaurs. It straddled two ecosystems, the land and the water, and dominated its own personal food supply. This made it versatile, a mega-predator that did not need to compete with any other hunter. Spinosaurus aegypticus could dominate its environment, and thanks to the lack of competition or overlap, it could rule its niche without worrying about other predators. The Spinosaurus was in a unique situation. Roaming across North Africa, it had taken charge of a small slice of the ecosystem. Every other animal was simply in the background. Perhaps that is what allowed it to grow so large and become the grandest predator of all. Spinosaurus has finished its hunt and is moving back towards the swift waters of the river. 
Abandoning the mangroves, it submerges its body in the current and begins to swim away. That sail cleaves the water, the tail waves with muscular power. Soon, the Spinosaurus is out of sight. Hopefully, you won't see it again. You watch as the Spinosaurus swims away, then look about for the Delta Dromius. It has disappeared, sating its disappointment by hunting smaller game among the trees. The coast seems to be clear, you can leave the mangroves once more. A few hours walk and you're back on the inland reaches. The ground is firmer and drier. The trees begin to change from tough mangroves to towering ferns once again. It isn't long before you find what you're looking for. The heavy tracks and the stripped foliage that mark the passage of the herd. You're on the trail of the Parali Titan once more. Wandering off, you go in search of the sauropods. The sun shines bright, but it is moving towards the horizon. The day will soon end, and night will fall. As you make your way steadily among the fern trees, you enjoy the peace and quiet that is beginning to descend. It has been an enlightening journey, but it's time to move on. You wander off through the trees, following the herd. Behind you, a shadow flits between the trunks. Delta Dromius is still on the prowl. I suggest you quicken your pace. Thank you for joining me on an unusual episode of the History of Egypt podcast. I hope you have enjoyed this brief glimpse of the Cretaceous period in this part of the world. If I could, I would have gone on for hours, but time is ticking and we really should get back to our own era. Humans do not belong in these swamps, and I would hate for something to go wrong. Cretaceous period Egypt was a vastly different place from the land we now know. From the enormous ocean which covered most of the Sahara, to the swampy mangroves which stretched across the western desert, the land was alien to that which the Egyptians would later experience. Still, traces of this history survive, preserved in rock for the sharp eye to find. If you know where to go, you can catch glimpses of this amazing but vanished past. The best fossil remains come from two places in Egypt. First, the Baharia oasis in the western desert. Here, large rock formations preserve features of the ancient mangroves and its animal inhabitants. Baharia is where the first Spinosaurus fossils emerged, along with sauropods like Egyptosaurus. Baharia also hosted smaller meat-eaters like Delta Dromius, the fast delta runner, and a large meat-eater called Carcharodontosaurus, or shark-toothed lizard. Of course, only a tiny fraction of the animal kingdom survives in the fossil record. For all we know, Baharia was once filled with a far greater variety of animals than I've been able to describe. Of course, the best known of Egypt's dinosaurs is the Spinosaurus, largely due to its appearance in the 2001 film Jurassic Park 3. Since then, understanding of Spinosaurus has grown immensely. For one thing, we no longer imagine it moving on two legs, like some kind of glorified Tyrannosaurus. Understanding of the aquatic environment in which it moved, and the ways that it lived and fed, have also increased greatly over the past 20 years. 
It seems that Spinosaurus is quickly becoming one of the best understood and most famous of the early Cretaceous hunters. What do I mean when I say early Cretaceous? Think Cretaceous period and you'll probably imagine T-Rex and maybe Triceratops. I don't blame you, they were once my favourite too. But those animals, famous as they are, never shared the planet with a beast like Spinosaurus. In fact, between the extinction of Spinosaurus and the appearance of T-Rex and Triceratops, there is a solid 20 million year gap. 20 million years between the species. That means that in the time it took one super predator to die out and another to rise, you could fit the entire history of humanity about 66 times. From the first Homo sapiens in East Africa all the way to 2018, you could experience our evolution 66 times just in the gap between two famous dinosaurs. We struggle to imagine life 5,000 years ago. These timescales simply boggle the mind. Spinosaurus went extinct approximately 90 million years ago. As the wider world underwent significant climate and geological change, the Bahariya mangroves and the Great Tethys Sea began to disappear. The rivers dried up and the plants vanished. Eventually, the animals of Bahariya could no longer support themselves, and most of them went extinct before the late Cretaceous even began. So Spinosaurus went extinct, but the dinosaur era continued. Eventually, T-Rex and Triceratops rose in what is now North America, with cousins in Asia and South America. Then, those species died out too, victims of the mass extinction which obliterated almost all dinosaurs 65 million years ago. It wasn't long, geologically speaking, before a new animal took charge in Western Egypt. Although the Great Tethys Sea retracted, it didn't entirely disappear, and the ocean still covered Sahara for long enough that a new animal could appear in the fossil record. What was that animal? Well, on an upcoming mini-episode, I will tell the story of Egypt's most mysterious valley. A few hours west of Cairo, you can wander between cliffs down paths lined with fossil skeletons. These fossils belong to whales. Coming soon, another mini-episode will explore the mysterious Valley of the Whales in Egypt's western desert. For now, we must return to our historical narrative in the world of Pharaonic Egypt. But keep an eye out, the whales are coming. The music for this episode was created by Derek and Brandon Feichter as part of their vast catalogue of ambient music for different eras and cultures. Of course, it's anachronistic to have any music at all in an episode pre-humanity, but I grew up with so many dinosaur movies that I can't resist a little bit of jungle rhythm. Thank you to everyone who is listening to the show. Special thanks must go to my Patreon subscribers, whose generosity helped me take the time I needed to put this side episode together. As you can imagine, learning about paleontology and paleogeology was a whole new ballgame, and some of the rules are bafflingly complex. Getting even a rudimentary grasp of the terminology and concepts took some time, and I couldn't have done it without those of you who have subscribed to Patreon. Thank you dearly, it is greatly appreciated. Now then, back to the pharaohs.
What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.